George! Dead George! I work for Dead George! He runs OCP! OCP runs the cops! Main officer, you know I don't usually see anyone without an appointment, but in your case, I'll make an exception. You are under arrest. Oh, on what charge? Aiding and abetting a known felon. Sounds like I'm in a lot of trouble. You better take me in. I will. What's the matter, officer? I'll tell you what's the matter. It's a little insurance policy called Directive 4. My little contribution to your psychological profile. Any attempt to arrest a senior officer of OCP results in shutdown. What did you think? That you were an ordinary police officer? You're our product. And we can't very well have our products turning against us, can we? Ah, still a little bite, didn't you? Maybe you'd like to meet a friend of mine. I had to kill Bob Morton because he made a mistake. Now it's time to erase that mistake. Welcome to the Superhero Cinephiles Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Constantine, and welcoming to get today a new guest, and that is Shane Rogers. Shane, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, so, like I told you before we started recording, one of the things I like to do is give, uh, especially new guests, a chance to, to talk about themselves a little bit. So tell people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, I am a stand-up comic, or at least was pre-COVID, and now I'm kind of finally getting back to it. Uh, And I'm the co-host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, a podcast of fun facts and uh, interesting topics chosen by our listeners. Uh, Me and another comedian, Duncan McEwen, are the hosts of that. Okay, cool. Uh, What are some of the kinds of things you guys talk about on there? You know, we have covered so many topics. It's really kind of a a, a catch-all. A lot of historical topics, some like biographical stuff, um, and then, you know, everything from cults, even some murderers. We've done QAnon. We've done the Manosphere. We've done uh, the most recent one, I think, was, um, boy, what did we just do? Mormonism, and we did uh, Scientology. And, yeah, so we've been all over the map. I'm surprised I've never come across your show before uh, Before you just talked about it, because that all sounds like right in my wheelhouse of stuff I like to, to listen to. So I think I'll have to go dig in after we're done here. Yeah, you'll have to check it out. Uh, it's great. We have a Discord community. We have a few hundred people in there. They're always in there chatting, and they, they choose the topics. We do a poll, and they come up with the topic every week. So uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It gives the listeners a chance to get involved. Oh, very cool. And you said you've been doing that for about two years? Yeah, the podcast's been going on for about two years. We started it right before COVID, so actually the perfect time. Um, we kind of snuck in right before things got crazy. So, uh, yeah. I think we're pretty much started around the exact same time, because that's when we started this show, too. It was yeah, like I noticed Right that. before COVID, and then uh, a few months later it hit, and um, and everything went crazy. 
Yep. And, you know, things are finally starting to get a little bit back to normal, but I mm-hmm. still I still feel like uh, crazy is a good way to describe yeah. the yeah, world definitely. at this point. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, you know, this is the superhero cinephile. So uh, what sort of do you have what sort of uh, familiarity or, you know, background do you have with superhero movies or superhero comics or anything like that? You know, I wasn't a big comic guy as a kid, although like Spider-Man, I was definitely into Spider-Man. Um, I've always been certainly on the Marvel side of things. Um, but yeah, I did definitely get into superhero movies. I think obviously with Superman when I was a kid, the original Superman, big, big Christopher Reeve fan. Um, and from there, yeah, you know, it's, it's been an, an, uh, an up and down ride with superhero movies. There have been some greats and there have been some, some lulls. And I think now we're in kind of the golden age of, of superhero films. So it's been fun to watch. I've always been, I've always been a fan, but I've certainly seen, uh, you know, I've, I've had to endure my share of, of, of terrible stretches of superhero movies. So now it's, it's great to see this kind of Marvel renaissance. It's been fun. And uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big uh, superhero movie fan. And it's brought me to you know, like graphic novels and things kind of mm-hmm. late, later in life. I uh, wasn't as much into it when I was a, a younger guy. Uh, my co-host is, he was a huge fan of like all these all these different graphic novels. He's always been super into comics and like he got me into like Preacher and a bunch of stuff that, that he's really into. So that's been kind of fun. He's sort of been in some ways my, my touchstone for a lot of a, a lot of this stuff. Well, we should probably have him on it sometime uh, eventually as well then. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Definitely have some stuff to talk about there. Um, but yeah, I think we're probably about roughly the same age demographic uh just judging by what i'm seeing in the in the camera here like you know mid late 30s early 40s something like that um and yeah (laughs) i remember that that stretch in like the late 90s early 2000s when we were so excited to get all the superhero movies and it was just like god i want to like it but it's got problems (laughs) yeah you know we all had to we we all had our share of green lanterns in there Mm -hmm daredevils mm-hmm. yeah um now today we're talking about a, a really interesting movie and i think some people will probably be wondering whether or not this really qualifies as a superhero movie and i remember you kind of asked about that when when you suggested this and i'm basically i'm just gonna say you know what it's my show so i'm counting it as a superhero <laughs> movie because i love this movie and that is uh robocop from uh 1987 i believe is when it came yeah. out uh, the original one, not the not the remake, which is not bad, but it doesn't really compare to to what this original one did. Yeah, they're different. They're different films. I mean, the in both tonally and you know a lot of plot points. Um, I actually, in preparation for this, just watched. I, I went back and watched the original because I hadn't seen it in a long time. And then I watched the 2014 version, and then I watched the because kind of a behind the scenes thing on Netflix. They have a like the movies that made us. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was gonna mention that too. I I saw that a few months back. Yeah, and so that was that was kind of cool. But yeah, they're they're very different animals. Those two movies. Yeah, um, I mean, it's. I remember a lot of people said you know it was terrible, but it, it's not. It's it's a decent enough movie. It's it just doesn't reach the same heights that the original did. Yeah, and it, it has a different tone. I mean, I actually, yeah. I enjoyed it. I mean, I think it's perfectly watchable. It's entertaining. It's a little bit more kind of dour. It's a little darker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of got a, his suit is black and everything. I mean, they, they went with sort of modern sensibilities. And it. so I, I feel like they kind of tried to 
reinvent the wheel there for for a more cynical audience almost mm-hmm. it doesn't have the humor that the original one had uh but i enjoyed it it, it was it was fun the effects are great it's yeah. it's cool to see you know although the original it, actually other than the maybe well we'll talk about it but mm-hmm. it, some of the effects don't hold up but i think a lot of them do i was surprised actually i was uh, but, too yeah yeah but the but uh, the new one was still or newer one uh, it, it was entertaining. It's just a very different film tonally, I think. Yeah, and it's got Michael Keaton just doing a great job too. So that's always a plus. Love Michael Keaton. Yeah. Um, and now the original one. I'm not sure what your association with this movie originally was, but I think I first came to RoboCop because there was this weird thing that was happening in the late '80s, early '90s when they made cartoons of literally everything. And yeah, including R-rated movies. So they had yes. a RoboCop Saturday morning cartoon. They had a Rambo Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. There was like one that starred Mr. T. MC Hammer had his own cartoon, Louie Anderson. It was this really weird time in kids' animation. That's right. I actually, you know what? I don't remember that cartoon. I was racking my brain because I, I was around the right age for it. But uh, I saw, I just looked at the Wikipedia and they said it, that it had an animated series. But I'm not surprised at all because just like you said, they were just throwing everything into an animated series. It, it didn't seem to matter. Yeah, it was like Robocop and the and the Ultra Police or, or something like that. And they had all the, and they had Ann Lewis in it as well as his partner again. And all of them had like tricked out cybernetic armor or something like that i remember um i'm gonna have to down download a couple episodes of that i got I, i've got to watch that you know what? i actually because i don't have a memory of actually watching it i don't think i ever actually i'm not sure if i ever actually watched the show or not but i did have some of the action figures and i remember the the robocop one it <laughs> this shows how little um you know people cared about kids safety back then but it had like these uh these it had like these firing caps you loaded into the back of the figure. It was really weird. That's amazing. Yeah, the, we actually did an episode on dangerous toys, uh, and it was fun to look back at an era when they just did not care about children's mm-hmm. safety whatsoever. Yeah. Or at least yeah. they sort of. At least they trusted kids to maybe be smarter than we were. They were like, "Here, good luck." Yeah, basically. Yeah, it was definitely a, a kind of a Darwinist type of life. It was. Um. So. I can't remember the first time I saw this movie because, you know, also in the 80s, just like, you know, our parents didn't really care about what kind of toys we were playing with. At least my parents didn't really care so much about what kind of movies or TV shows I was watching. So they see a movie. It's like, oh, RoboCop. That should be fine. Let them go and watch that. Yeah, I saw it way too young. I do remember when I saw it. I was, I think, 12 which probably, I don't know, it's not too young. It, the, considering that violence is kind of mainstream these days, I don't think it's it's that much crazier than mm-hmm. kids are looking at on the internet. Um, but there are, there are some shocking things in there. I mean, I, even rewatching with the, you know, with the, the guy who falls in the toxic waste and everything and getting run over. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty graphic. I yeah, it like, is. Wow. It is pretty graphic. And um, I like, I've watched it at some point definitely before i was 12 i know that i was way too young about it um which is why i don't care so much about what my daughter gets exposed to when i'm watching movies because i'm like i saw a lot worse stuff when i was her age it's just like germs right i mean yeah. we, we all rolled around in the muck when we were younger and it inoculated us against a lot of the stuff today mm-hmm. and it's basically the same thing like when you see stuff a little bit early it's like it prepares you for life what you're gonna deal with later, yeah. later on yeah so um and when I and then I had like fallen away from this movie. I hadn't seen it in years. And then I they had released um, 
the director's cut. It was like this special two disc or like three or four disc set in like a steel can in a, like one of those metal box containers uh, back in the early 2000s, I think it was. And rewatching that and the director's cut, which is much more graphic. Um, mm. So like the especially Murphy's death, like they go into real graphic detail in that if you've only ever seen the the theatrical cut uh, i mean even the theatrical cut it's kind of it's torture porn you know mm -hmm. he's just blowing off different parts of his body and making fun of it yeah it's, yeah it's, it's pretty rough um but one of the things that struck me is just how brilliant of a satire it is when you rewatch it when you're older yeah, you know, there is, I, I think that was a fun rewatch because I did catch some subtleties and nuance and stuff that I hadn't. It, it is more of a sort of, and, and even finding out that the writers were like these kind of hippie guys who were very anti-corporate and anti-military. And it is, it's mocking corporations, big corporations. It's sort of mocking the militarism of the police. And uh, yeah, I hadn't caught any of that subtlety when I was younger. I just, you know, big gun, metal guy shooting stuff. This is great. Well, even uh, even the director Paul Verhoeven, um, when he first got the script, he threw it out, and yeah, and then his his wife, I think it was his wife or his girlfriend or whoever it was, took the script out and said, maybe you should have another look at this. It's actually a lot smarter than you think. And then yeah. he read it again and he started to notice all these things in it, and it really plays. And it's it's shocking that this movie was made in 1987 because so much of the stuff that we're dealing with now in 2022 was predicted by this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just like I said, like the militarization yeah. of the police, like, you know, the, the police now, it's it's a big deal that police are getting like tanks and things. I mean, there's, they're getting all of this, all of this military equipment that they now have access to. And that was something that I think he was, that movie was kind of predicting and alarmed about. Um, but yeah, it was his wife. And I do think that's interesting. I mean, Verhoeven would go on to do like Starship Troopers, mm -hmm. which has really the same themes. I mean, it really makes fun of the military industrial complex. And he's, you know, you can just see him. And also him being a foreign director, I think, is he Dutch or is he? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's Dutch. And he has a very, he has a very tongue in cheek approach to America. Like his idea of America is very much the European characterization sort of the caricature of an american right mm -hmm. that we're all we're all very militant we're all very hyped up and that's kind of what he likes to lampoon in his movies and i just yeah i don't think i've been aware of how much humor there was and how much kind of mocking and under the surface criticism in the movie it was fun to rewatch mm -hmm. um even and then even all the just crazy silly humor all the you know i'd buy that for a dollar <laughs> stuff like it's just it's just it's zanier than i than i remember it being because i thought it was very badass when i was younger and now it's like oh a lot of this is just silly you know mm -hmm. and int intentionally so yeah yeah <clears throat> and i think that's what works so well about it and i think that was kind of well it you know talking about the remake it's it's funny when you watch the remake because the remake takes the the idea the concept so much more seriously than even the original did yeah yeah and that's what i mean about it sucking a little bit of the fun out of it i think i it's still an enjoyable movie it's it's i think like i said it's very entertaining but and they tried to sort of shoehorn a little bit of the humor in there with the samuel l jackson mm -hmm. character kind of him having the talk show that's sort of a, a spin on the o'reilly factor or something um but that sort of i don't feel like that works it felt very out of place it felt like they were trying to to you know shove a little bit of the old sensibility in there um because the rest of the movie is very serious and very grim yeah. um 
But, you know, pr- still pretty badass. I mean, the effects were great. It was fun to watch. A lot of stuff blowing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very, it's, it works. On the level of an action film, it works really well. And then they did show, there was that one moment in the newer version where they they show him what's under his suit. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was... Uh... That was I thought that was really effective, and that was something that you just couldn't do back in, you know, I think they have some great effects in the original, some really good practical effects, his leg opening up and the gun coming out always looked Mm -hmm. great to me, Um, but they could not have pulled off something like, you know, just showing his his brain (laughs) exposed and just his one hand and just his lungs pumping, Mm -hmm. you know, and that that was all that was left of him, Um, was really, that was really shocking, I thought that was really effective to see how how terrifying that would be to realize you're just locked in this metal body. Yeah. Um, and so that I thought they did really well in the, in the new movie, but I don't know that that's necessarily a criticism of the old movie because again, I don't, that's just something they wouldn't have been able to pull off. Right. The only way we could really get that is uh, the scene when we're, when we're see- when they're putting him together and we see it through his eyes and, um, and uh, Bob comes in and says, you know, lose the arm, forget about trying to save the arm. That was great. Yeah, that was actually really good. You know, and then again, another kind of dig at corporate America and being very heartless and just, you know, it doesn't, we, who cares about his biological material? Just we need him as a, as a machine. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that stuff was great. All of the, you know, them throwing a party while he's just in the corner and they're just having this, you know, they, they're clearly like they have their party hats on and everything. Mm-hmm. And then she like kisses him on the visor. I mean, they're just, they're very cavalier about this man who's been completely disassembled and put together and is obviously, you know, this is a traumatic event for, for any human. And they're just having a great time. He's just, mm-hmm. he's just, he's just a, you know, for, he's just something to tinker on for them. Right. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's, uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good point. I even think about that because, um, <clears throat> and there's so much of that, that dehumanization, uh, uh, of workers and just like the, cause he even says, I, I catch this now, um, when Bob is making his pitch to the old man and he says, we've already put prime can, we've already restructured the police to put prime candidates in high risk locations. So they're actively trying to put these, the best people that they have to, to get them to get them killed basically so then they can tinker with their bodies yeah that was so sinister i had not caught that in my in, in my original watching or any watching since any viewing since that yeah they were they were actually you know they wanted to get the best candidate and so they were putting good officers in danger hoping they'd get shot up so that they would have you know someone to use i mean that's that's just the ultimate you know the shady shady corporate dealings mm-hmm. yeah yeah and um also, the talking about the prediction stuff, not only the militarization of the police, but the privatization of so much stuff, because um, Dick Jones even says that in his pitch, right? He's saying how, you know, we've this company has expanded into areas that were traditionally regarded as um, as non or unprofitable. And he mentions uh, hospitals and and um, and prisons. And it's just like so much stuff that all that stuff has come to pass now. And we're seeing how you know, corporations are constantly monetizing these things. Yeah, from the military. I mean, you have, you know, Blackwater and all these big, Mm -hmm. these big mercenary outfits that are, that the military is contracting to. The military is becoming more and more outsourced to corporations in America. And you're seeing that even on, you know, even on on police levels. Um, Yeah, it was really interesting to see the the corporate takeover of, and and we're even getting that with like space flight. You know, NASA Mm -hmm. NASA doesn't fly to the moon anymore. They've ceded that to, to the private sector. 
And I, so this movie was really prescient in that way. I think it, it foresaw a lot of this stuff. Well, yeah, and even just like the the corporate callousness, as long as it makes money, that's all they care about. Because Dick even says to Bob, right? You know, I had all these military contracts lined up for Ed 209. Who cares if it worked or not? And it reminded me of the the um, the 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 funding it was a it was this big story a few years ago where congress kept approving funding or like raising the funding for some really expensive aircraft that was not even feasible and even the pentagon is like we don't want this money this thing does yeah. not work and congress still kept funding it yeah well it's so much of it goes back to you know these days definitely a lot of it goes back to sort of which state is is it being assembled in and how much how many jobs are going to be created in that state and and that you know that congressperson has to advocate for their state and it doesn't matter if the thing is ever used or if it works it's just i'm bringing back the pork to my state you know exactly yeah um so yeah there was a lot of that in there i also thought it was really interesting that one of the big the the villains in it are very interesting because there isn't like one major bad guy there's really one of the huge conflicts in the in the movie is between two of the corporate you know, two of the corporate bigwigs, like this guy who's the the one guy who's who's very ambitious, and the other guy who's already kind of set in his place and protecting his 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 empire. And uh, I thought it was interesting that that you know instead of just having like the good guys versus the bad guys, sort of there's nuance everywhere. Like the the police are are corrupt. A bunch of the police officers are corrupt. A bunch of you know the the obviously you're dealing with the corporations, and pretty much on every level there's some level of corruption even within you know there's there's a bunch of different uh, criminals who are arguing and squabbling over the, the drug areas and things i mean it's just it, it it felt like everything in this was corrupt there was no one other than obviously murphy is kind of the the one touchstone for like he's sort of the the moral center of the movie um but other than him and i, I guess his partner to an extent but other than that like everyone is flawed it's just it's just a miserable place like detroit is just a cesspool <laughs> there's nothing good there you know well, yeah and to that point too is murphy being the only the only really good person and, and Anne too as well is that they're constantly getting getting shit on because of yeah that. like you yeah. know Murphy gets blow, he gets transferred into here he gets his he gets blown apart he gets put into this robot show where they try they try to erase his memory um and, and, you know, they try to, at every single step of the way, there's someone trying to, you know, fuck him up, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought it was interesting. I mean, they really turned Detroit into like a Gotham, mm -hmm. a Gotham city. You know, it felt like, it felt like the, the city itself was kind of menacing just because everything in it was bad. Well, that was especially the time period that this movie came out in, because I remember that yeah. was the, like Detroit was, cons I'm not sure what it's like now. I think it, now it's not as much, but back then it was like Detroit was considered like one of the most dangerous cities in America. Oh, it was. And that was, you know, that was the era of like Roger and me and Flint, Flint, <clears throat> Michigan with all of the plant closings and everything. So yeah, it was a huge economic crisis there and tons of crime. And so, yeah, I mean, they were just predicting kind of where things were going to go. Luckily, like you said, I think Detroit has turned around to some extent, but, but yeah, it was, it was, it just felt interesting that they almost made the city feel menacing mm -hmm. to me and the map some of that map painting stuff was great they did i guess they shot most of it in dallas actually oh, okay. dallas was kind of a, an up-and-coming city at that point a lot of new construction it kind of felt modern um and so they used like the the police or the 
the is it the police headquarters or is it the corporate headquarters wherever he kills ed 209 so it must be like the corporate headquarters that's the corporate headquarters. yeah yeah they used uh the dallas city hall the the bottom of that is the dallas city hall it was just this very weird like modernist structure and then they did a matte painting above it and it was oh, really okay. cool to see and i think it came out great i mean i was really surprised at how well other than the stop motion stuff the ed 209 i mean that looks very dated it looks pretty pretty silly when it's when it's moving mm-hmm. um but beyond that i mean i was surprised at how well you know the matte paintings looked great all of the prosthetics were amazing i mean it really still held up i was surprised to rewatch it and and feel like oh wow you know this is this isn't as dated as, as i thought it would be yeah the effects are really good and like you mentioned the only one that really kind of is really hinky looking is like you mentioned uh especially that scene in the boardroom with ed 209 like when he's walking towards the boardroom table and everyone's backing off that looks really out you can tell that's just like okay that's you know in front of a screen or something like that yeah it looked like the stop motion from like those old dinosaur movies from the you know 60s or whatever they had like the harry house and stuff yeah yeah or like king kong or something just that really cheesy stop motion and it's interesting because that was i guess i think what's his name phil tippett who did a lot of the Star Wars, like the the you know the the walkers and everything, mm-hmm. um, and it in most of the stop motion in Star Wars still kind of holds up pretty well. It looks a little smoother, but in for for some reason in RoboCop it just that just stood out. Maybe because the rest of the effects were were pretty good. Uh, that the Ed two hundred nine was a little rough. I think it's also just the the setting of it because in Star Wars most of the time when you see like the the walkers something like that you don't have a bunch of people in the background that it's yeah but here it's because the ed, the ed 209 stuff it looks a little hinky when there's not any other people in the frame but it mostly works yeah, yeah when I you have the right. other people in there then it kind of it then the uncanny valley vibe really hits you yeah uncanny valley is a good a good description of it because it is sort of as soon as you take something into a, a pedestrian environment like a very normal environment where we expect we we know how things should look in a boardroom and right. so when something is so anachronistic and out of place and then it, it doesn't move right it just throws you off whereas you know on on hoth or something on some for on some alien planet with only the sky in the background it's a lot easier to to fool us yeah that makes exactly. sense yeah. yeah i think that was a big thing for me because that's really the only scene the only shot that really kind of pulls me right out of the movies that one but other than that all the other effects and you know the prosthetic work on on the robocop suit is unbelievably good even when they when they take off murphy's helmet and you see his and his his skin is like pulled over and the the it you act i i, I every time i watch that i'm like i i can't figure out how they did that it was seamless i was really shocked i actually paused it and looked at it from a couple different you know in a couple different angles and i was because i was trying to figure out like wow back then i just felt like i i didn't expect it to look as good as it did it almost you know it, and and those practical effects there's something so tangible about them they feel very gritty and real as opposed to you know now it, like you can look at the 2014 one and it looks great it's all very glistening and everything looks you know obviously a lot of cgi and everything looks really good but there was something very visceral and like gritty and hands-on about those practical effects and it just looked great like mm-hmm. especially like you said when they took the helmet off i was blown away i was like wow that is just expert that's amazing and something else too i noticed about this is the um, the constant cutting away to newscast and this actually is a is a bit of a comic book connection because the dark and i'm not sure if it's just serendipitous or if they got this from comic books but 
um, when Frank Miller did The Dark Knight Returns in 1986, which is a year before this movie came out, he did a lot of that. A lot of this, you know, cutting away to news broadcasts and, you know, the whole idea of like the 24-hour news cycle and the punditry and all that kind of stuff was very a very heavy heavy feature in that book and they use that to great effect in here like it it, it opens with the newscast yeah and there's newscasts kind of spread throughout and they're all sort of tongue-in-cheek and it's obviously you know it's very hyper real it's all kind of intended to be mockery uh, but I think it's effective. Like it didn't, you know, it doesn't throw off the tone. It, it's a, it's a really fine line they walk here between the comedy and making it serious. And, and you know, there's there's drama. Murphy walking through his his house once he's Robocop and walking through his house and kind of all the memories and everything. I mean, there's some very poignant stuff in here that would be it would be. I don't know how it works because it kind of shouldn't. On paper, I'm surprised that this script got greenlit because I would read this and go like, there's no way you can pull this off. Like you've got all this kind of tear jerky stuff in the, you know, shoved in here with all of this tongue in cheek silliness and satire. But somehow it just it just works. And Verhoeven can definitely misfire. I mean, he's had, he's had some terrible some terrible, you know, basic instinct showgirls is a great example of just mm-hmm. like you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but I mean, Showgirls had, it was just sex and violence. And then they would try to have like this sad backstory for the character. And you're like, this is, oh my God, it's it's so hard to swallow. Um, but when it works, it works. He's just able to, you know, especially in this movie, just this kind of magical melding of all of the silliness and all of the seriousness. And it somehow it comes together and, and it just is effective. Yeah, I... I've never seen Showgirls, but I have seen the infamous sex scene in the pool. Yeah, <laughs> God. where she's having a conniption. God, it, it's like I feel like that's it. It's so weird because that whole scene looks like everybody involved. It looks like everyone. It looks like that scene was constructed by people who have no idea how sex works. The whole movie is like it. It's like you have no idea how people work. Like there's there's this brutal rape scene that just has no reason to be there, and then there will be jokes right after it, and it's just like this is like an alien made a movie. It's mm-hmm. none of it makes sense. The wrong choice was made at every possible <laughs> juncture. You know, it's just it's it's deliciously awful. Like it's really bad. But but like i said for some you know starship troopers on the other hand i think really strikes a similar balance to this movie although a lot more on the kind of silliness side of it but it just works it you know it's just one of those things where when someone is really committed like verhoven is to going all out he doesn't do everything is over the top you know he did there's no there's not a lot of subtlety in any of his movies and when he's when you're that committed you're either gonna miss big or you're really gonna hit and the movies that he's done that work they just really hit well, yeah, I think Starship Troopers is a is a good um, is a good example of that because that's a movie that's been so that was so misunderstood for so long because it was so over the top that people didn't realize it was supposed to be that was the joke. Yeah. Um, whereas this movie, like, I I cannot think of a single person who does not like this movie because it's just yeah. <clears throat> it's it's because you can look at it in so many different levels. Like you could look at it on on the cheese level and just like, which I think is probably how most of us of our age group probably grew up watching it. It's like, Oh, it's cool. It's a, it's a, it's a robot cop. You know, it's, that's, that's, that's fun. Um, it's badass. But, uh, but then when you get older and you watch it again, you're like, Oh my God, they're really, they're really making some searing indictments about America in this movie. 
Yeah, I do think that that is one of the reasons it's so effective is that it, it can sort of hit a wide demographic and it works on a lot of levels. So you can sort of watch it. If you're just, if you just want to see a bunch of stuff get blown up and that amazing huge hand cannon that he's mm-hmm. carrying around, which is just, you know, iconically badass with its like multi-shot and the flame kind of coming out from the sides you know it's just it's just a badass movie but obviously like you can watch it on a lot of other levels and that's what makes it hold up i think that's why it's still that, that's why it's still so watchable i mean i i kind of was wondering i hadn't seen it in, in a few years and and i was definitely wondering how i was going to feel about it and if i was going to go into this going like oh boy that didn't hold up as well as i thought but it totally does it was completely entertaining and it's just just a great movie it does yeah and it's even like just like the reagan era stuff of it like the whole um the whole idea of the the they're going to the Star Wars platform, right? <laughs> Which right. is the big thing that Reagan was trying to push through in the eighties was the Star Wars missile defense system, strategic and, defense initiative. Yeah, yeah, and then they get up there and it stops working and they lose weight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of little subtle digs. Um, it was interesting to see the kind of behind the scenes stuff and see how intentional all that was and how kind of you know political these guys were. And again, I think Robocop is another. It's another example of movies that do get somewhat misinterpreted, even though people, everyone loved it. I think it's like, you know, the song Bored in the USA or something. I mean, you, oh, you yeah. talk about Robocop and people are like, oh, it's a badass action movie about like, you know, how amazing the it is super cop, basically. But it, it really is an indictment of all that stuff. And so I, I do think that Robocop is misinterpreted by a lot of its biggest fans. But that's what's great about it, too, is you kind of, you know, you take what you want from it. Yeah, I think the misinterpretation is really common of, with with not only that, but a lot of movies you see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. But it is kind of amazing that, like you said, that this movie got that this movie got greenlit. I mean, just like all the, because Reagan was, you know, was like a sacred cow back then. He was still this is his, he was still a president at this time. So it's and he even for. I don't think there was a there even to this day there hasn't really been a real reckoning with his presidency but so to put a movie out like this back then that so goes after him I think was this movie had had balls on it I'll give it that yeah you know good on Orion Pictures for for pulling the trigger on it and I think that there is you know Hollywood always has been I think the one sort of bastion of leftism during mm-hmm. even during Reagan's years you know Reagan was incredibly popular but obviously Hollywood is is pretty liberal and I think there was there was full knowledge of what they were doing with this movie among the the people who greenlit it I think mm-hmm. you know they were like well we're going to this is this is also a little bit of a chance to to you know stick some jabs at the yeah. to, to take some jabs at the administration here well i think too the, the set i think that's maybe one of the reasons why it was misinterpreted so much because the satire almost works too well because you can yeah. easily see this as like you said you know you can enjoy it as just being like an over-the-top action movie and it definitely does that part really well so if if you're not paying attention you could easily miss the satire on it I almost wonder if that's why verhoven went so overboard with starship troopers because mm-hmm. it's almost like um you know the, like a lot of the people who made Top Gun have talked about like, you know, well, now we've been sort of pigeonholed as like being pro-military and so went on to do a bunch of other stuff to kind of counteract it. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if he was like, you know, well, I think 
too many people liked that movie for the wrong reasons. I'm going to make a movie that's so over the top that no one can misinterpret it. But then people still did. They yeah. there's still people who think Starship Troopers is a gung ho you know military fest, which yeah. is hilarious because it's so clearly a, a satire and so clearly intended to be to be uh, mocking. I mean, you just can't win with that's always the danger <laughs> yes. when you're doing satire. It's there's always going to be someone who who misinterprets it as being the yeah. thing that you're actually making fun of. Exactly. That's totally true. Um, and also just like it, it, the commercials, too. I love the commercials in this. As All a the kid, little. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, I, I think I may have actually thought they were real commercials, like watching this on TV or something. <laughs> Well, it was funny to see that they uh, they were, I guess, intentionally mocking, especially with that, uh, all, I'd buy that for a dollar, that they mm-hmm. were mocking Benny Hill in particular. Um, and so they had they had specific targets for these. Um, and that was something that I definitely didn't know when I was younger. I just thought like, oh, they're being they're being zany. But no, they were like intentionally spoofing certain, mm-hmm. you know, char- characters. Well, especially I love the, the car ads, right? The SUS, the sucks. The, the sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody wants an SUX. Mm-hmm. And I guess that was, you know, Verhoeven is just, they they talk so much about Verhoeven and his sort of classic, like, make it bigger, make it, make it louder, make it, you know, he has mm-hmm. this, it's, it's funny because he very much mocks the American mentality of make everything bigger and, and louder, and, but that became sort of his refrain and it became a staple of, of his directing too, it was just mm-hmm. make it bigger, make it louder. And I was shocked at, at how much just absolute destruction there is in this movie i mean that whole scene where they ha- they're playing with the new guns they have those new you know guns that are going to take out mm-hmm. robocop and they just blow up everything in the vicinity and yeah they kept exploding more things and i was like are we really we're still doing this all right i guess they're just going to blow that and now they're going to blow up two more cars and now they're going to blow up this building and it just it was you could just see verhoven going more more bigger mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah it was it, that must have cost a lot of money, and I guess the the biggest explosion they had was that Texaco station. There's a gas station that explodes at one point, yeah. And the crew had said something about because you know he kept saying more and bigger. They're like, all right, well we're we're gonna give him more and bigger, and I guess it like blew up. It blew out uh, windows. You know, three blocks away, they had to pay a bunch of money. They had to pay four hundred dollars extra for all the cast members for hazard pay for that day. Like it ended up being really expensive, but they gave him what he wanted, and he was thrilled. He was like, "That's what I'm talking about. It's huge." Well, I mean, that's the that's the amazing thing about this movie is just how much of those explosions are real explosions. They actually set off. That's not CGI like you see now. And that's what makes it feel so visceral, you know. The same thing with with his with the practical effects on his skull. Mm. It it really feels gritty. And and you can feel the concussions from those explosions because they were they actually happened as opposed to you know it, it is I still I'm not a, a hater of CGI I'm really happy with what CGI has done for movies Same for the here. most part because it's it's been able it's allowed me to be able to visualize some of the things that I could never have seen you know I remember Jurassic Park when that came out and just being like I never thought I would see a convincing dinosaur on screen and imagine right. what it would be like to be next to a T Rex. And so I think CGI is great, but there is something, you know, I feel like the old guy <laughs> shaking my fist at a cloud, but there is something just, uh, just more visceral about, about those old practical effects that you really feel them. And they, they seem, they seem, uh, they seem like they're of, of the universe that we reside in, you know? Well, I mean, you also just have to res- have to respect the, the craft of doing that and just, yeah. and, you know, 
and just just the risk you're taking when you're the danger involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you got to respect the the stuntmen back then. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So the stuntman, I, that was another thing I didn't know that they had actually fired uh, the lead actor on this movie, and that the stuntman was they were actually going to use his stuntman, the stuntman, and they were trying to get him to like do some acting lessons and things. They were going to have him be the new RoboCop. Um, but that's you know all the stunt people were so involved in this production mm-hmm. that I guess that's that's how uh, you know that's how interwoven they were with the production that they actually were just like well let's just have the stunt guy be be RoboCop then. That's a that's a nice transition to talk about the um, the cast in this movie because uh, you know some you know pretty uh, in, interesting names in here like you got Miguel Ferrer as uh, as Bob Morton you got Ray Wise who is just like basically a a cameo in this movie and then he goes on to do bigger things um kirkwood mm-hmm. smith of course you know everyone's favorite uh dad from that 70s show <laughs> right i love right, seeing yeah. him in these older movies it's so funny to see him in these roles before because i'm mostly i think i really came to know him from that 70s show and then i go back and i rewatch these old movies from my childhood and i'm like oh it's like you know where can you spot kirkwood smith in an old movie well, and that was inspired casting too, because you know I don't see him. He's not the typical villain. He's not. He's not some big, mean-looking guy, right? They even gave him. You know, he had glasses. He was kind of nerdy-looking. Um, that was just. I think that was a really smart casting decision to to kind of go a different route and not have the typical. Especially this was '87 when every villain had like a leather jacket and a you know a. a some cheesy hairdo and you know like the ponytail and all that kind of a stuff switchblade yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> it was that full it was like the bad video or uh, michael jackson um and they went with a with a kind of a, a nerd you know mm-hmm. which i thought was cool it, it it made it it gave it a little bit more it made it a little bit more menacing because it was unexpected and he played it very well i think i think well, he was also- great the the smarminess he he brings to the the character yeah. too like the the jokes he's making and all that and now i'm i'm watching it and i'm and i'm thinking now that this guy actually kind of became created a new template for for movie villains going forward because now we have like almost every single villain in every single movie is some smarmy smartass character i think you're right i think that you know by by sort of subverting in that expectation and seeing how successful that was, I think a lot of other people took notice and were like, "Oh, we don't need to have the cheesy '80s villain. We can we can go a different route." And I'm glad that they did. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a much better choice because um, you watch some of those villains from some of those older movies, and you, we just laugh at them now, which kind of makes yeah. you wonder what are people going to be doing with the smarmy villains in 20, 30 years? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Nothing ever holds up over time. Um, but Peter Weller, uh, you know, and and like you mentioned, there was some. Uh, there were some issues. I think there were some issues. I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly, but um, it was the, like you said, they brought in the stunt man. And I think there were some issues with Peter Weller himself. Like, I think he left and then he came back. So he was threatening to leave. There were a couple different reasons that he clashed with uh, Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. And one of them was his movement style. He had, he had, uh, Part of his contract was that he wanted them to employ a movement coach for him, this guy that he particularly had in mind. But the guy was teaching him this like very martial arts style movement. It was mm-hmm. going to be, but it, you know, it was it was staggered, but in this really smooth way. And um, and then once he tried on the suit, none of that worked. 
And so there were there was all of this arguing about how he should move, and he was kind of refusing to do it differently. He was also super frustrated with just the process of the suit. Uh, it took, you know, the first time they put it on, it took 14 hours to get him in the suit. And he was just like, I'm not, I'm not doing this every day. And they, they were able to get it down to like four hours by the end. But it also caught, you know, it also weighed between like somewhere between 30 and 80 pounds, depending on the particular outfit for that day and what they were shooting. And he, they said that he lost three pounds a day with just water weight. So he was yeah. constantly having to... <laughs> And this is a guy who was a, a marathon runner. And so, you know, he was a fit, fit guy, but he was pushed to his breaking point there. He also was very uh, method, which just strikes me as I, I think that has to be one of the most annoying things. I understand that it has worked really well for some actors, mm -hmm. but for other people on the set, he forced people to call him Robo, which that's just, I mean, how can you take that seriously? Like, <laughs> that's really annoying. <laughs> Well, like Robert Pattinson had a really good quote recently about method acting when he says, you know, it just kind of seems like an excuse for you to be an asshole. You never see hear stories about someone method acting and just being like a, a really nice person. Yeah. And it's like they never method actor. It's never their method acting for like a, a good hearted character. Mm -hmm. That's never the case. It's always some jerk. That's totally true. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to treat everyone like shit and you have to excuse that because that's what my character would do. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's, you know, that's why it's a character, man. This is a job. And if you can't act when they say action and then stop acting when they say cut, you're not much of an actor. Like yeah. then you're just an asshole. At that yeah. Point. Um, uh, there was uh, the famous exchange between Lawrence Olivier and uh, Dustin Hoffman. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but no, no. Uh, so this was when they were doing Marathon Man and uh, Dustin Hoffman had been like, you know, up for three nights or something to like really kind of get in the character. And Lawrence Olivier asked what was wrong with him. And he told him and Lawrence Olivier, he's like, he's like, my dear boy, you should try this thing called acting. <laughs> I love that. I like hearing the behind the scenes uh, drama between actors. Mm -hmm. when I, I just watched this interview with uh, Jim Carrey from another superhero movie. It was one of the Batman movie where Jim Carrey was the Riddler. Oh, Batman and, Forever. Uh, Batman Forever with him and Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones just could not stand Jim Carrey. He just hated yeah. everything about Jim Carrey. And at one point, the, he said this line that I've used a bunch of times on our podcast. It's kind of become a refrain. All of the insomniacs, they, they know this line because of the, he, he, uh, he was explaining, I guess, why he could not stand Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey said, why do you hate me? And he said, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. <laughs> and that's just, that is a line that I love. And anytime Duncan's being a little out of pocket, I'll just be like, I cannot sanction your buffoonery. <laughs> it's so funny because he gets... It, when you watch that movie, it's almost like Tommy Lee Jones is trying to out Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey. Yeah, I think he felt really like Jim Carrey pushed him to a place that he didn't want to go as an actor, but that he had to to meet that, match that energy, you mm -hmm. know? And I think he yeah. resented that. Well, I mean, a lot of people should probably should resent that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh God. Uh, and it, well, it is interesting, though, because I felt like this movie has a little bit of that Joel Schumacher aesthetic mm -hmm. because it sort of has that like a little bit over the top but it's like if if it were done right you know like this is the way to to do that sort of almost comically like we we know that this is over the top and ridiculous but we're accepting it whereas in batman forever you don't accept it it's just right. ridiculous it just all comes across as you, you roll your eyes and it would be really easy to make a version of robocop especially with that script where you just roll your eyes through the mm -hmm. whole movie and it, but he made it work yeah um and peter weller's 
like you know the movement stuff uh despite all the problems they had with him on set with that i mean it, he sells it really well like what they eventually got out of it really works you really feel like this guy's um mostly a, a robot body yeah i guess the sticking point ended up being the movement and then he refused to say there are those those rope there i don't know what they're called but it's like the the robot cop commands basically which are like it's oh, like the, the directives three, the directives, right? It's like the prime directives, like kind of like in uh, iRobot or something where it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I will not harm such and such. I will work for the good. I, I didn't write them down or anything. Yeah, it was, but, um, it was, uh, I remember them. It was, uh, uh, protect the innocent, um, uphold the law and defend the public trust. Yeah. Very like judge dreadish kind mm -hmm. of, you know, just very simple and like I am the law kind of thing. <laughs> and Weller had wanted to make it more flowery and like he rewrote those lines and he kept saying them that way and they were getting very upset and they were like, no, you're going to say the lines in the film and he wouldn't do it. And that's when they fired him. Uh, that was finally, I guess, the last straw. And I think Weller sort of thought he was calling their bluff. He didn't think that they would actually mm -hmm. fire him. And when they started shooting scenes with this other guy, he was like, oh, you know what? Let's uh, let's talk. And, <laughs> and he changed his tune and he agreed to do it. And I'm glad he did. But, uh, you know, I mean, you have to say the guy has good instincts because whatever he did worked. And uh, it's it's good that they reined him in a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but but he does seem like he was the right choice. And <laughs> when they asked Verhoeven what was so great about about Weller, he said yeah, he's got that that chin. <laughs> like yeah. he just he gives you know his face and mouth, his chin and mouth are just perfect for a Robocop. Well, you know what's kind of funny too is that all the problems they had with Weller, all the problems Weller had on this movie, like for the longest time, I thought he had quit after this movie and that they had gotten the because I know in Robocop three they had got someone else, but but then I I'd given robocop 2 another watch recently and i was surprised i'm like wait that that that's peter weller i thought he'd quit after this one i you know i haven't seen robocop 2 in forever i don't think i ever ended up seeing robocop 3 how is 2 does it does it 2 hold up? is it's much better than i think its reputation is um okay I'm not sure if it's good but it's definitely better than i think people would, would um remember it as uh, RoboCop 3, though, I haven't seen that in a while, but I remember that as just being hot garbage. It usually, you know, it's usually by the third one, they just, it, it all falls apart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, especially with with a movie where it's kind of like catching lightning in a bottle, like we said, it was so unlikely that that first movie worked. To try to recreate that magic two more times and not have it be, you know, not have it go too far to the to the side of, of being tongue-in-cheek or too far to the, to the gritty and, and, you know, kind of... Uh, over-the-top violence side it, it just seems like they shouldn't have even tried it again yeah you know? yeah well even just the way weller delivers his lines as robocop like that kind of like almost stopping and starting like he's got this very almost like staccato way of speaking when he does it mm -hmm. and it really it really helps sell that idea of him being like all robot and just like the way he delivers it almost completely without emotion but then he transitions to when he's talking about um when he takes the helmet off and he's talking he's asking about murphy's family and it's it's like his speaking style changes too it's it's really well done it's it's a really understated um effect that he uses there i think you're right i think that that is an element of the movie that doesn't get enough attention is that there is a character arc and there is supposed to be this mm -hmm. idea like it ends with him saying you know what's your name, you know, what should we call you? And he says, Murphy instead of Robocop. And that is 
that is the progression of him going from this this robot to kind of reclaiming himself mm-hmm. and that is very subtle but it does work and if you're watching on that level there is kind of this gradual resurfacing of of the humanity inside him right yeah and and that's kind of cool like it is you know it's a little bit overplayed at this point it's kind of the pinocchio syndrome or something where he's like becoming a real boy but like it works in that movie it just he really sells it um yeah i thought i thought all of it just kind of hit on the right you know it, it sort of it just it, it hit all the right beats mm-hmm. another thing i thought was a an interesting wave to end this movie is because i think in in a movie like this where you've got basically the corporation is the bad guy Right, because everything bad that happens in this movie is because of OCP. Like even even Clarence and his gang, right? It's they're working for Dick Jones. So yeah, uh, um, and he's he's even says like you know, you know, once the whole idea is to make crime actually only look like it's stopped, but really once the construction crews come in, you're going to be giving them drugs, you're going to be giving them prostitutes, you're going to be giving them gambling and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's just like you know trying to cover it up with. Uh, a veneer of civility is what yeah and every other every other 80s movie you know especially the kind of rambo-esque raw raw stuff it was always the the street hoods were the bad guys you know and then then, but there'd be like a drug kingpin or something but yeah like you said in this movie it is it's ultimately the corporation and and that was at a time in america where we had the cia selling drugs to the you know the contras in mm-hmm. for the contras in in nicaragua and things so you know there there was again a lot of uh there, there was stuff under the surface that actually was i think pretty uh, pretty relevant at the time yeah absolutely yeah well also too is that and most of the time when you would have a corporation as a villain like and i think the 2014 one did this to an extent too where basically it's robocop taking down the corporation in the end in some form that doesn't happen here. Like the whole directive four, which, you know, going back to the three laws of robot, I didn't even make that connection with the three laws of robotics, but you're right. It's very similar to that. But then you have directive four, which is very much a corporate idea where it's like, you know, you cannot, um, you cannot, uh, any attempt to arrest an OCP executive will result in immediate shutdown. Right. Which, and that directive is still in place like that. And that, yeah. that stays in. They don't actually delete that until, RoboCop 3 is when he finally deletes it. but And it's a weird scene because he deletes it by himself, which is completely defeats the purpose of it. Yeah, it is interesting in this movie because you do have, I guess, the happy ending of these particular bad guys lose, mm-hmm. but the bad system remains in place. Like, yeah. everything still sucks. It's not, you know, it's not, the world isn't, it's not a happy ending for the world. It's just that a couple guys who were bad got dealt with. But it is over, you know, still, it's a pretty cynical movie, All you know, even even at the end, it's, mm. it maintains that cynicism. Well, yeah. The I mean, other thing, okay. yeah, you've got, um, you know, you've got Dick Jones holding the gun to the old man who is, you know, probably just as bad because he's he's the one who's running this, you know, he's the head of the company. company. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, RoboCop saves him and then he even, you know, gives him a, a kudos. Yeah, he's like, oh, that's nice shooting, son, and all that. And so <laughs> yeah. it's like, I, I think that's, it's really smart of that Verhoeven did it that way because it shows that, you know what, this system is so big that we can't just destroy it with one guy. Yeah, absolutely. And there was, I think, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. Like it's, it's, you can have these little victories in these movies, but ultimately there's still, the system is still Mm -hmm. infected there and they make that really clear in this movie. 
I thought you were you were about to say something else before I, I touched on the old man thing. This, this is totally different, but it, it, on a totally different uh, track, but it had occurred to me. The other thing that I think really sells, not just his, his movement, his movement really works with it, but that the, what I noticed on this viewing was the, the sound design, the sound of the weight of his steps, mm -hmm. you know, is just really, really, there's a lot of gravity there, like literal and figurative gravity that just, you know, it makes him feel weighty. And then when he moves, all the whirring and the you mm -hmm. know the machine, the, the machinery sounds when he turns his head or turns his torso, um, it just that really you know if you take that out, it just it's a guy in like a suit that could clearly be plastic or something. Right. But it gives it that sense of heaviness and sense of solidity and makes it a really imposing figure. Uh, so yeah, I was really impressed with the sound design too. I think that's something that doesn't get enough. Yeah. I, I think he, yeah, I think it did get. It ended up being, uh, the movie ended up being nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, and I think they were all technical stuff. It was that would all make like, sense, you know, yeah. sound design and things, and they won a couple. I, I'm not sure which ones, but sound design should have should have won for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, God, the sound guys must have been going out of their minds trying to match every single little, little movement with yeah. a little whir or a little stomp. I mean, you know, you got to give them credit for, for that diligence in that. Yeah, it's funny because I, I downloaded a version of it. I was trying to get like an uncut version. And so I was like downloading different versions of it. Um, and one of them, the sound was just a little bit off from, mm -hmm. you know, so, and it, which didn't bother me during speech. It wasn't that noticeable. But then when he walked, I just couldn't take it because his <laughs> foot would come down and then it would be like thump and then his foot would come down and then it would say thump and then you'd get the thump. And it just, you know, that just takes you out of the movie when, because that, that's why I noticed that it was so important that that, you know, that, that, that element be there. Well, speaking of the sound too, I mean, this theme is so good. Basil Polidorus uh, did the music on this. That theme is so iconic. Yeah, the theme is great. And all of the, all of the score, I mean, it is a little overly dramatic. It's very, very, uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's very orchestral and there's just a lot going on there, but it works in this movie. I mean, I think that's what you need. You needed that much. You needed to really sell it. This needed to be a big feeling film, especially considering it was so low budget. They, I think they sort of intentionally kind of spruced it up with things like sound design and the, and the orchestra and everything to make it feel like a bigger movie than it is mm -hmm. almost. And something that this is, and this is kind of a nitpick, but it's something that kind of jumped out at me on this last viewing is that as forward thinking as this movie is in so many ways about about society about culture about politics it's not so forward thinking when it comes to technology because you see like the the like i remember the the scene that really jumped out to me was when he's in his house and he has the memory of his kids sitting on the couch watching this like old like set box tv set with the little turn stop turn dials on it and it's just yeah like, you think it, you compare it to something like Minority Report, which uh, one of the things that Steven Spielberg was really intent on with that movie was kind of predicting where technology would go. And he consulted a lot with um, with people who worked in technology. And and so that's why so much of that stuff seems like it it was an accurate prediction of what we have now. But whereas Robocop, you see him with these these really old box set um the two the old boob tube tv set screens 
Yeah, I think it was. There was intended to be kind of just this feeling of almost magical realism. That's one of the reasons I feel like it is kind of a superhero movie because it's sort of a pastiche of all these different. You know, the the cars are a great example where like there's all this high technology for the buildings and things. They're all very like futuristic, and then the cars are like you know old Detroit beaters. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that was supposed to be that the emphasizing that the cops, you know, that's all that they could afford or something. I don't know, but it you know they. It seems like he he didn't seem to care that much about the melding of technology. I feel like yeah. that was part of Verhoeven kind of saying, "I'm not trying to make this real. I'm trying to I'm making an alternate, almost an alternate universe situation. Like this isn't this isn't you know your city five years from now. This is what could have happened in a different timeline, right? Um, but yeah, the the technology is all over the map. Yeah, with that. What I did appreciate was it did subvert some of the other standard kind of action movie cliches, even superhero movie cliches. There's no, you know, there's no romance between the two partners. You think when he gets a female partner that there's going to be some type of like, she's going to fall for him and he's going to regain his humanity. And then maybe they'll have some kind of romance or something, but there's nothing like at all. They're just, they're just friends and that never changes. And they said that they actually, when they cast, uh, who was it? What, Nancy what is her Allen, I think. It wrong. Yeah, Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen, right. Uh, when they cast Nancy Allen, that she she had a reputation for being... She had, like, long blonde hair. She was very feminine, and she had been kind of a an ingenue-style, you know, actress. And they really... They went out of their way to, like... They told her to gain weight, so she she quit smoking, actually, so that she would gain some weight. And then they cut her... They chopped her hair super short. They wanted her to be more, you know, a little bit more androgynous and less of a potential love interest. They didn't want any kind of sexual tension there mm -hmm. because he's, you know, he's a robot. That's not what this is about. And I thought that was interesting. You know, I liked that they sort of didn't go the standard the Hollywood action hero route where they, you know, find love at the end or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. But, um, and that would be a standard plot line you would have or subplot you would have in one of these types of movies is you know she helps him gain regain his humanity through the power of love or something like that um, exactly and also i thought that and um like the, the 2014 one obviously took a different route but i thought it was really cool that they just kept his past completely in the past right there's no effort for him to to seek out his his wife and son there's no effort to you know it's they're only seen in these in these memories and that's it in the 2014 version no i mean in the in the original one yeah because i was gonna say because yeah in the 2014 that's the opposite like they have his right. wife be this really active she like seeks him out and tries mm -hmm. to sort of bring him back to who he was and she's a much more i you know i think that was sort of symptomatic of, of the current uh, the current trend of sort of making sure that everyone has agency. And I think, you know, I, I can understand why they did it in the newer one. They wanted his wife to be an active character. Um, but I, I do like in the original that, like you said, he's not, he doesn't like go, you know, in the, in the newer one, they had him going back and talking to his son and kind of <laughs> this whole, you know, he sort of reintegrates into the family to some point. And with this one, it's like, no, that that's part of the tragedy here. Like, we're, there's not, that's, he doesn't get a happy ending. He doesn't just get to right. go home and be daddy again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's part of the cynicism that, that the sort of overarching cynicism of this movie, that like, there's not going to be a happy ending. The, he might get the perp, you know, he might kill the bad guy, mm -hmm. but all the other, the, the, the real bad guys are still there and he, he's still a robot. You know, he mm -hmm. still doesn't have, he still doesn't have his humanity. 
Now, uh, the last thing I want to talk about is, and you kind of mentioned this before, is, and what I kind of introduced this movie as, is do you think this qualifies as a superhero movie or not? Because I, I personally, I've, yeah. I've always personally kind of classified it that way. Like even in my, in, my, in my own personal Plex library where you can manipulate the genres, this is under the superhero genre category for me. I think it absolutely is. I mean, it, it's actually interesting. One of the things I learned was that there were two writers on this movie. The, there was the guy who had kind of had the original idea and he had obviously come up with the name Robocop which that was something that I found interesting that they went with the name Robocop, which sounds so ridiculous. But uh, the other guy who he ended up co-writing with had an original idea. One of the reasons that they sort of uh, collaborated was because they had both talked about their sort of ideas that they had had that, that complemented each other because the other guy had an idea for a movie called Super Cop, and mm -hmm. it was basically a superhero cop. And so they sort of, you know, this movie was intentionally... Uh, intended to be Iron Man meets Judge Dredd was, was how they described it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this was a comic book movie from the beginning. Like, that's what they were envisioning. And so, you know, this is a guy who has a traumatic event and then gets superhuman abilities. He's right. given superhuman abilities and he kind of finds himself and he becomes more autonomous toward the end. And it, it, to me, this is absolutely a superhero. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I, yeah, I completely forgot about that, that it was originally that was kind of the idea. And it is kind of funny because growing up, I, cause th there were of course Robocop comics and I had always thought that for the longest time, I thought the comics had come first and this was an adaptation of them, but it was actually the other way around. The movie yeah. came first and then the comics ended up coming later. Yeah. Yeah. All of the other spinoff stuff for Robocop, it was just through this guy's script. He actually, the, where he got the idea of it was seeing the, one of the police cars, uh, one of the futuristic police cars on the Blade Runner set because mm. the guy who wrote it was uh, right, he was yeah. working on on one of the sets and uh, he would kind of sneak in there and help out with with stuff on Blade Runner and so he was really influenced by a lot of the the Blade Runner aesthetic and then mm. he saw this particular sort of one of the flying cop cars there and he just imagined like the kind of cop that would get out of that car would be a robot cop right yeah. and that's kind of where it all came from. It's kind of funny because they had they do the opposite in both movies, right? In, um, in Blade Runner, you've got where you think it's going to be this big robot cop coming out of that futuristic car, but it's just Harrison Ford. Whereas in this one, yeah. you've got the old beater and that has the robot cop in it. Yeah, yeah, in this one, and they, you know that might that might just be a budget issue, but mm -hmm. for whatever reason, but I do like that 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 yeah, it's it's you know the 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 technology, the real technology is is in the people in this one. But I remember as a oh sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no! Well, that was something that he also found kind of inspiring about Blade Runner was that the robots in Blade Runner looked like people. They weren't, you know, they weren't all metal. Um, and that was a kind of a nitpick that I had with the 2014 version, which is that they had all these robots running around, and then they decided to create a robot-human hybrid, and that just it, it felt very. He even I, they say something about it in the movie where he's kind of like, well, this is a huge step backwards. And that's kind of what it felt like. It's like, mm -hmm. why are we going to, I, I felt it was a little tenuous, their explanation for why you would switch from robots to a, a robot who now is a little bit more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, that was interesting. My, I got to rewatch the movie. I haven't seen it in, in a long time, but the way I remember it is it was, it, it seemed like more of a public relations thing than anything else. Um, although that may not have gotten as gotten across as well in the in the story, they, they wanted you know robots that could make like moral decisions, I guess, in okay. the moment and things. But 
I, that doesn't make sense to me because yeah. humans are programming the robots. Humans are usually controlling. You know, it's like a drone. You still have a human who's who's making the decisions ultimately. Right. So either way, if the humans in the robot itself or the humans making the decisions for the robot, either way, a human is you know determining what a robot's going to do. So I don't know. Yeah. That that it seemed like almost they were they had all this amazing technology in the beginning of the 2014 version and then they sort of decide to shove in a you know a, a mm-hmm. guy into it and it just felt like well this is unnecessary and a step backwards in in technology and functionality but yeah I, if i was if i was doing a remake of i would have done it like a public relations angle to make the robot seem more human or something like that i think would have worked would have worked better then and i think there's a subtext of that in the first one where that's mm-hmm. kind of you know they have all the kids running up to robocop and everything right. that you know those kids aren't going to run up to ed 209 and, mm-hmm. and try to touch him and, and talk to him you know yeah um well also this the, the whole police brutality thing too is also really on is really uh really prevalent in this movie when you watch it in light of uh what we know now yeah there's definitely that that's kind of part of the judge dread element too where it's mm-hmm. just, just like cops just do whatever the hell they want yeah yeah <laughs> all right yeah. um do you have anything else you wanted to mention about this movie uh you know i think we touched most of of what i did plan on talking about i mean i i just i really enjoyed it this was a good chance for me to rewatch it because i think that this is a movie that that like i said super holds up mm-hmm. and uh you know it it's it would be fun to see some newer version of it i think um mm-hmm. with a little bit with a little bit of the humor back in it i was re- i would really like to see an updated version of robocop but i just don't know that again you can catch that lightning in a bottle i think this was a product of its time and it all everything kind of came together at the right time with the right people and it worked and so it's a little perfect gem and i don't know that you know that it'll ever be uh, recreated yeah i think you're right i mean this is you know, hands down, one of my favorite movies. Um, uh, I, I when I rediscovered it when the, when I got that that uncut version on DVD, I'm just it just fell in love with it all in a totally different way. It's it's a movie that holds up on so many different levels, and it's like anyone who has I don't know I don't like I said I don't know anyone who doesn't like this movie, but anyone who doesn't like it, I definitely suggest giving it a rewatch and trying to look at it from a different angle. Yeah, I'd be interested to know what their beef is with it. Other than, you know, I guess excessive violence. I think that's mm-hmm. the only thing. And it did it did get an X rating to begin yeah. with, and that's why that's why they had to cut a bunch out. Um, but you know, that's just for violence. I mean, obviously, there there really isn't much else that you could be upset about in this mm-hmm. movie. I think. Yeah. Okay, uh, Shane, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you want to tell people once more where they can find you? Yeah, check out the Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. It's a podcast we do weekly. It's you know, you can actually uh, vote on the topic, too. If you have something you're interested in, you can subject, suggest topics in our Discord and uh, come check it out. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on. It was a fun discussion. And uh, if you ever want to come back on again, you're more than welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, that does it for this episode of Superhero Cinephiles. SuperheroCinephiles.com is the website. And we are Super Cinema Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and also uh, Superhero Cinephiles on Facebook. Uh, Please make sure to like and review us on Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to the Superhero Cinephiles podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SuperCinemaPod. Join our Facebook group by searching for Superhero Cinephiles, where you can interact with us and other superhero fans. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a regular supporter at Patreon, or make a one-time donation through PayPal, both of which can be found at our website, superherocinephiles.com. 
If you buy or rent any movies through the Amazon links at our site, it helps support the show. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And as always, good night, good evening, God bless.